0: So good evening everyone. I got my title of the evening uh, in the last few seconds. <laughs> and it is um, I just came up with it because of a just a beautiful little interaction that happened just now. Um, both Deborah and Dawn both came in and looked at me with what I t- Interpreted as loving eyes. <laughs> Who knows what I was projecting? <laughs> Looked at me with loving eyes and asked me if I needed anything. And uh, just so touched by the just availability of their presence that I titled it "Empty of Self, Full of Love." Clearly, they were not preoccupied with their own internal world in, th- in that moment. And the face of that openness is just uh, just goodwill. So I was really touched by that. And I wanted to begin, I did have some other things I want to say, but I, I wanted to begin. It's like a little prologue tonight. And the prologue is, I think, encapsulates a little bit of what we've been up to the entire week and maybe where we have Touched into as we've settled into the retreat, even though you may feel like uh, you forgot everything you learned after talking a little bit. but perhaps you began to see a certain trajectory of the retreat as as you settled in more that uh, may be captured in this short passage from Henry David Thoreau. He said. I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. No run on my bank can drain it for my wealth is not possession but enjoyment of being so it's likely that after days of practice you have maybe gotten a little bit of a a taste of existence just the simple and direct experience of your life, of life. You don't even have to add the word your. Just life. Uh, And how that experience that that begins to seep in uh, is so natural. We don't create it, but somehow our as I use the expression from one teacher named Nisargadatta, as we brush the dust of memory, as we, we just show up here a little bit more, we just start to settle in. And it's completely understandable that it takes a week, at least. That maybe even take a lifetime to get used to it. Because every message, and we've all been saying things like this, every message that we get in our life is to associate our well-being, and especially in, in our culture, associate our well-being, our home with, I would think of the great little editorial by a person named Amy Krauss-Rosenthal, associating our well-being with busyness. She says, How have you been? Busy. <laughs> How's work? Busy. How is your week? Good, busy. You name the question. Busy's the answer. Yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee jerk response. Certainly, there are more interesting more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my home. I'm itching. (laughs) That one yogis know. Yet busy stands alone. And I say this because this is our conditioning. Busy stands alone. As the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are, I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. She said, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? (laughs) This week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? She continues, I have a hunch that there's a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing taxis or Ubers or whatever, making copies, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to every question, what did you do at school today? Nothing. <laughs> what's, what's new? Nothing. Well, a lot of the nothing questions. But then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180-degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. She says, I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing, I say it a few times and I can feel myself becoming quieter, decaffeinated, more meditative. Now I'm picturing or feeling emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How did I get so far away from it? as i mentioned and we've all mentioned in our own ways we're never really far from it in some way we are a split second a half breath away from that but yet the habit of mind is to uh, is to shoot past this this open secret this sense of of being at home right where we are and the habit is so much for our in our minds to go out in search so that's why we practice to reorient ourselves to the life of the living present and to allow all the qualities that have gotten have gotten Tightened, have gotten obscured, got, have gotten s- through so many innocent experiences that we've had where we, somehow we couldn't accommodate what was happening in the present moment. And innocently, if it was pleasant, we couldn't handle that. And our mind just went right into that tight fist of grasping, and then grasping sent us out in an incessant wandering for the shivers. and. <laughs> <laughs> And then the the consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going told us that if you want to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. That's that's also from an actual advertisement. It's it's it's, It's selling a pickup truck, believe it or not. But all that happens really easily because we haven't known how to accommodate pleasant experience and really take it in to feel the gladness that comes and to be able to ha- be wide enough in our heart and our mind to say, yes, this is extraordinary, extraordinarily full and pleasant and, and healthy and didn't know how to do that. We just wanted immediately wanted more. And this turns out to be a law that the Buddha saw operating. He called it the law of dependent origination, that we have contact and it produces a feeling of pleasant. Pleasant is followed by liking. Liking is followed by wanting. Wanting is followed by what he called bhava, becoming. And pretty soon we're off and running. And how could we even know that's happening unless we stopped and took a look? That's why in the Tibetan tradition they say, look within the nature of your mind. Don't, believe, don't adopt beliefs about it. Look within your own mind. See what it's doing. And we've asked you in so many different ways, how many times in this retreat did you notice yourself jumping into the imagined future? I bet you did a lot this afternoon. How about into the imagined past? Now, all of that it comes from an innocent sense of trying to find relief trying to find uh, some relief. But our mind, in its delusion, in its confusion, it thinks the relief is to be found in following. uh, Wherever my desires lead or wherever my... uh, If I think I can replace something enough of the past, I uh, I can somehow heal it. Not knowing that the healing is the integration of what the feelings left, the body, the unbinding of the body that is only found here. But we've been trained to get busy, go out. When, of course, something's unpleasant, produces a little not liking, and then sometimes a big not liking, and then tension, and then that tension needs a little relief, and it goes into the form of blaming and demanding, and... I don't know if in the course of any of the afternoon programs we talked about the, the Vipassana romance and the Vipassana vendetta. Well, sometimes it, that the pleasure gets... Tr- some pleasure at seeing somebody gets triggered and you like it, you want it, like them, want them, and then pretty soon you're made, dating, mating, traveling, married, divorced, and all in five, men- five minutes. Of course, nothing's happened except your mind has just gone from c- complete contentment with a moment of a pleasant sight. You've just gone off and running. This is so innocent. But the beauty of stopping is we can see our mind doing that. And the same goes with something unpleasant. You know, it's something, somebody comes in the room late and you hear the door slam. There's a little irritation because it's broke, broken your... Precious silence, <laughs> my silence, and then pretty soon it's all about me. I don't like it, and then that that pressure of aversion just gets projected on that person, and they're wrecking my retreat, and they're the reason for the secret, the reason for my unhappiness. Or maybe the the. Maybe it was aversion showing up in the retreat, and then the the strong desire for the bell to ring, and you know, and then the the practice leader was held the secret to happiness. The you know, the bell ring, you're waiting like this, in a state of suspended happiness. But all this is just the human mind. The beauty of dropping in is like, wow, look how how just a little pleasant or a little unpleasant or a little more unpleasant, and the whole reactive mind gets taking place. But meanwhile, in the knowing of this, we're slowly, slowly uh, replacing those moments or at least infusing those moments of reactivity with moments of noticing. And so we've developed... We've started with the intention to incline our mind toward well-being and wholeness. And obviously you wouldn't come on a retreat if you didn't have that inclination already and that you didn't think that actually stopping and nurturing your attention and nurturing your mind and body in the present moment wouldn't be a way of, of supporting you. But we make that intention explicit here and we gather our attention. I was reading an interesting uh, little description about the word samadhi. The the word samadhi is the unification of mind. That's what happens when our mind and body comes together. And samadhi, whatever that is, that feeling that comes from time to time, when our mind is free of its usual preoccupations and it just stays here, It's called samadhi Samadhi is different than just your everyday concentration or flow. It's called samadhi because its intention is for awakening, to be used in the service of understanding, in the service of of coming home to ourselves, uh, as opposed to in the service of doing a sport well or finishing a project so concentration or the unification of mind dedicated to, um, to awakening. It's what you've implicitly done in, here and, some, and sometimes explicitly. And we've used as our main, uh, our main navigator, you could say, for that journey back to ourselves. You, we've used the, the second leg on the, on the awakening joy machine. I don't know. I've been trying to think of what to call awakening joy—the awakening joy path, or whatever. Anyway, the second—the <laughs> <laughs> second one is 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 mindfulness, which is serve the function, which its function is to is to gather our scattered mind and to bring a kind of bare attention. To our experience just the way it is, as James talked about vipassana, just as it is, and bring with it a, a sense of, of intelligence, of clearly comprehending what it is that's happening in the present moment. And this is this simple tool that is completely natural to us. So using the same, it's part of the nature of our mind, we can we can either space out. We can have what's called unwise attention, which is just being absent-minded. That's basically what our training has been up to this point. Uh, Or we can have what's called wise attention, which is is mindfulness, a clear comprehension of of what's presenting itself so that we're actually experiencing our life. This is what we've done. This has been our navigator. And the effect of this is... uh, The way I think of it, someone shared this with me, they they said, attention brings affection. When we keep attending to things, there's something, if I attend to any one person in this room, I could pick out any person, and if I stay there long enough, I become really interested, become really attentive, and I I enter into a little world, I'm doing it with you right now, and (laughs) hope it doesn't make you uncomfortable. (laughs) And I like you already. And and I just start to feel a little bit more connected. And I may have certain defenses that come up. But the more I do this, the more I just hang in there, hang out with you. It's the same with our bodies, the same with our moods. When we really connect with it in a sustained way, we start to feel some kind of affection. And then we enhance that feeling of affection by bringing all the exercises that... That help us uh, just help nurture and awaken all those heart qualities of gratitude. I just gratitude seems to spontaneously arise on a practice period like this, and just for that sense of existence. But all kinds of of gratitude as our heart softens. So this open heart and open mind, same, same. It's a it's the same word in Sanskrit, "pali chitta." And that's part of our journey is to just open our heart to the beautiful, uh, pleasurable qualities and the, and the beautiful heart quality of compassion as we open and develop affection for our suffering and the suffering of the world around us. It's just part of coming home to the life of the present moment. We've also enhanced our... Um, our heart qualities and our sense of well-being I'm doing a little review here we've sent we've enhanced our I think that you may be able to feel this palpably. We have practiced non-harming together we've created a, a beautiful community of of blamelessness of taking care with our bodies, our speech our actions and and there's i the effect of that to me is that uh, and many people have described this in my meetings i feel really safe here i feel really like i can relax and that's not an accident it has to do with that the environment that you create when you purify your actions and when we do that together and give each other the gift of solitude and the gift of being able to completely devote ourselves to, to awakening those, uh, that bliss of blamelessness, then it, it creates a field of safety. And, of course, when, we, when our home life comes back into our consciousness as we leave here, you will find that not everybody is... Uh, is practicing non-harming but you in your own little way just like you know mother teresa with one person at a time you give them that gift of fearlessness they don't have to be afraid of you they can feel safe around you little by little it's your it's each of our form of radical social action and of course we can't be too idealistic about this because we live in a world that is informed by 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 karma by by conditions um, that uh, that, are, um, not, that are, more often than not beyond our will and our wish. This is why we cultivate that reflection on the development of, of equanimity, of realizing that we care we, that one of the traditional recitations is, "I care about you, one person or the world, I care about you, but I, I can't keep you from suffering." And so it's a way of finding a balance. But nevertheless, we, with that balance and the courage to, to practice with an open heart and non-harming, we, we enter, we let the world come back to us, the, the busier world. And of course, we don't have to leave ourselves. We always are exactly where we are. I find that amazing. It never ceases to put me in a state of awe that I actually don't ever go anywhere that, that that idea of going back to my life is just a story and that in fact I'm right where my where I am and the my life comes back to me I'm driving and I'm right where I am and the scene is changing <laughs> then the people of my life show up and I, and it's like they're part of this dreamscape, this part of the, this mandala. And I go, wow, how did you get here? But here you are. And I better not fight with you because you're part of my, my dream here. And uh, so I try to, I work with it. But I realize when I, I don't go anywhere that I only have to work with it one moment at a time because the last one's gone, the next one hasn't happened. I just keep bringing it in. You've been developing that capacity here. And may it continue, may it increase. Uh, as we say in the teachings, may it never wane. The sense of, of steadiness, of stillness. And in dropping into the, the living present and awakening this, this quality of attention, Relaxing into life as it's unfolding. We see this, you could call it a flywheel of experience, completely unbidden, 65, something, someone said 65,000 thoughts a day float through our mind, completely uninvited. And so, someone said that it's 90% are repeats from the day before. <laughs> Feelings come, sensations come. And slowly, we it, it dawns on us that that it's all moving and changing, and that something in us says something in us stops trying to to block the river. We just enter into the stream. We let go into the stream of life. It's like we trust it. We merge with it in a way, and we start to have much more of that sense of letting go and even the stories that play through our mind there's just a there's just a little less stickiness involved and we see that they come and they go and we practice letting go so finally because of the training of your attention to stay in the only reality there actually is, which is the, the reality of this unfolding now. and Every other reality, even what we call our life, is really, in some ways, our imagination. The totality of our life is being together right now. We stop for a little while missing it so much overshooting it. And what naturally dawns is the, the final stage of the awakening joy, the final, final pointing to, which is, of course, is a lifelong deepening and a lifelong getting used to. But it's what James calls the, the joy of being. It's not the joy of being somebody. It's not even the joy of being. It's the joy of being minus the word. It's a kind of dropping all need in moments to define yourself or your experience. Of course, in talking about it, we, we call it by many names. Call it the joy of being. We call it the, the, I called it in the, I borrowed the words of, of uh, I forgot who it was. <laughs> 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 ken Rinpoche. He called it natural great peace. He says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. That's the endless wandering. But he says, rest in natural great peace. So many, many names. But it's really just that, it's that sense of having come home. Minus the word. Home to our in our bodies, home in our minds. A state of being lucidly aware. And it is, it has the flavor, this lucid awareness, this this natural awareness, this natural knowing that doesn't, it's not constructed, it's not created, it's just natural. Now had we not trained our attention to be here, we might not recognize that that awareness is so natural. but when it is when we experience ourselves and I described it in the meditation yesterday as as self knowing it kind of knows itself this this sense of being aware, it also has it has a certain kind of, it has certain emanations or it has a fragrance to it. And one of, the, one of the flavors is, or fragrance, is the fragrance of equanimity. A feeling of balance. A feeling of contentment. A feeling of, of non-contentiousness, of non-reactiveness. as this teacher from an Advaita Vedanta tradition, Nisargadat put it, called it true awareness. He said it's a state of pure noticing without the least attempt to do anything about the event being noticed. Thoughts and feelings, words and actions may also be part of the event you notice all unconcerned in the full light of clarity and understanding. You understand precisely what is going on because it does not affect you. It may seem to be an attitude of cold aloofness, but it's not really so. Once you are in it, you will find that you love what you see, whatever may be its nature. This choiceless love is the touchstone of awareness. The sense of relief is another part of the fragrance of it. As uh, the poet Hafez said, just sit there. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you trays of food and something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. But it has this flavor of rest, of of equanimity. It has a, f- a fragrance of trust and surrender. Maybe you had a little taste of trust and surrender where you didn't feel like you had to manipulate or control anything or make anything happen or figure anything out. Your life for that time was in a state of trusting what's unfolding. It wasn't an attempt to control the future, which is really the number one one cause of, of anxiety. Um, it's a, just a matter of resting. So a sense of surrender and, and trust. And I'm not sure if it's if this is how you experience just a sense of being present, being aware. But I think of it as completely ordinary. And in James's work, he talked about ordinary being, ordinary joy of being. And when I think of it being ordinary, I also think of it and experience it as being completely portable. It's not... It doesn't have to be associated with sitting on my cushion. It's my natural state. It follows me nearer than my breath as it sometimes described. Wherever I go, there I am. Try not to be aware wherever you are. And you see, oh, this is so ordinary that it's actually quite extraordinary. We begin to touch into this. And then Begins to be a little clear that I don't have to create this. As well, this joy of being seems to have an absence of. Um, of me, of, I would, I'll call it the imagined me. Much more of a feeling of non-separateness. As I I notice, this is beautifully stated by that same teacher, Nisargadatta, he says, when the mind is free of its preoccupations, a little bit more, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll discover that it's permeated with a a light and a love you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your your own natural state. Once you've tasted this, you'll never be quite the same person again. The unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return as long as the effort is sustained till uh, all bonds are broken, grasping and attachment ends, and life becomes just concentrated or settled in the present moment. So when there is that absence of my preoccupations, those little gaps, you know, like in London at the, the subway, they mind the gap. Those little gaps... They're no better than the times that are filled with stuff where there is no gap. But, but that's, it's, a, it's an experience that begins to just naturally widen. And in that gap between our last thought and before the next one, there is a melting away of a sense of separateness. There's a feeling of, of interbeing. Like right now, I can't, unless I think of something, think of you and me and all our different roles, I can't find an actual dividing line between us if I don't give rise to some kind of thought. And that kind of that kind of uh, um, non-separateness is there's something that has the fragrance of being reassuring that I'm not so separate. I'm not, I'm not the one wave like in the Bhagavad Gita. I'm not the one wave that's somehow gotten separated from the ocean. I'm actually immersed in life. Not the idea of life, but the direct experience of it. And there's something, maybe I don't have a huge smile on my face, but there's a, there's a quiet joy in it and that feeling of connection. Again, don't believe anything I'm saying, if it's not your experience, I mean, it's just something to, to, (laughs) to, to see if that's true in your own experience. This has been spoken about a lot and by different teachers and philosophers. Here's what what Tiknan Han says, "You are me, and I am you." Isn't it obvious that we enter are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I'm in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. It's this kind of natural give and take that comes when, as we feel that sense of being part of something a little bigger than our own little internal world. Got so many quotes won't share them but there's more more material So oddly as we settle into what we can call just natural our natural state primordial awareness joy of being whatever flavor is showing up in any particular moment oddly All we can say about ourselves in the present moment, on present evidence, when we're when we're this connected to life, right where it's touching us. Or as Donald Babcock says, when we repose in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. <laughs> He says, I ease, he says about this little duck that he describes, he eases himself into the boundless, right where it touches him. But when we do this, what can we say about ourselves in real time? Other than something like, I'm aware. What's in abeyance at that moment, in the moments of being aware is the um, the usual way that you define yourself that we've talked about as our story, as our different identities? Perhaps you're getting you've gotten a little sense of of in these simple moments you don't need anything cuz the the one we usually think of ourselves as is usually someone we've all shared different versions of this on the retreat is that i guess you could call it a problem we are in our view about ourselves a problem to be solved yet It's very difficult for anyone to find that problematic one when we're simply present. It requires that we consult our memory. Without that view about ourselves, we're pretty peaceful. You get used to that and you might begin to see that the version of you that, you, of you that plays in your mind as rich and beautiful as it is, as much as it reflects everything that's ever happened to you, really it, does, it reflects whatever's happened to you from beginningless time. I find that kind of amazing too, that, that, that what we experience is the result of everything that has ever happened. And anything that happened differently would affect each of us individually. It's wild. <laughs> as rich as that, everything that forged our our internal world and our thoughts and our views about ourselves and, and our thoughts of where we came from and where we're going that Creates this sense of identity. Whatever that version is, it's in some way. The Buddha called it sakayaditi. Says it's a view. Even though it has a certain uh, conventional truth to it, it's it's uh, it it's what it's what uh, it's a description of our of our life and our individuality but it, it has, it's filled with distortions. It's a second-hand version of yourself. And it's often a version of yourself that there's something, something's wrong, as has been said. The more we tap into being present, we can start to see the difference between what your experience is on present evidence and the, the difference between that and the story that plays through your mind. And what's possible is to, instead of believing everything that your mind is saying. About you and treating it as the absolute truth, we can begin to relate to it as what we call identity. And we can see, relate to identity just as we do to any other human function with mindfulness, with affection, with compassion. We can see the way that view of ourselves affects our body. Do you know that view of myself? It changes according to who I'm with. It's completely insecure. Here I am the big guru. This has dawned on me over the years. And then I go home. And if I think I'm the big guru and I go home and my daughter doesn't even say hello to me, of course she's 14, almost 15. If I can see the way, if, I, if I've gotten really identified with being who I imagine myself to be, I become deflated. But if I see, oh, that's just part of the, part of the human condition as we tend to build Identities around, uh, around everything, and it and that identity because it's so insecure spends a lot of time building, defending, protecting, even getting enlightened. And it's that it is samsara. It's endless because its nature is ephemeral. It's empty. And it is subject to the same conditions as your moods, as your body. The beauty of touching into that joy of being, I can see the difference between what I am on present evidence. As Emerson says, who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. (laughs) I can actually experience myself, not the idea of myself. And I can see the difference between that story as saying, you're not this, you're not that. If I take that to be an absolute truth, all these different identities that show up, I am going to suffer so much. Somehow, whenever I talk about this, I think of the, the short little passage from James J. Audubon, the the Audubon Society where he says if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says believe the bird <laughs> now we have a lot of practice believing the field guide book all of the cultural notions, idealistic notions of who we should be. And so there's a constant tendency to measure to the comparing mind. I know we talked about it. How there's a tendency to, uh, to construct ourselves as a way of trying to find security in, in our identity, construct ourselves as better than, or we construct ourselves as, as measuring as equal to, or we construct ourselves as being less than. And each of those has their, is its own kind of uh, view, its own identity. And that measuring makes us really tight. And it's a distortion of perception. The beauty of of being present, getting used to being fundamentally okay, sufficient, enough, That it begins to... T- to happen as we sit together. And we can see the insecurity of of trying to be somebody. And instead of judging it, there's no reason to judge, it's part of our human condition that we have narcissism. We have a sense of, we have to have some sense of being individual and unique and special. But at a certain point, that individual, unique and special becomes a kind of obsessive process of, of, of um, measuring and becoming. And unfortunately, that process of becoming be- good, better, best hasn't made anybody truly happy. But as we wake up to our natural state, we can relate to that with much more kindness and mercy. That's what we've been developing that um, kindness and mercy to our to our minds that are constantly looking, seeking approval or acceptance, okayness. And then to our bodies that are... A lot of identity gets tethered to our bodies. And then our bodies are aging or they don't, they don't cooperate. And then our moods. So we, we can see that this is not the source of security. The security is in being able to notice all of this, and to rest in that joy of being just as you are, just where you are. This is what the poet Rumi said in uh, in a poem called Tending Two Shops. He said, don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only rest comes when you're alone in the truth. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere, and you have eyes that judge distances how high, how low. You own two shops and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap. Always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. Put in more simple terms from wonderful cookbook author Ed Brown. He tells a story from his youth. He said, when I started to cook at Tasahara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix, then blobbed the dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped on the can on the corner of the counter, and it popped open. Then you twisted the can even more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan and baked them. I really liked those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to beaver? That's dating this. People who, could, people who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally one day came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh my word, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> 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 then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were wheaty, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning. So liberating, these moments when you realize that your life is just fine as it is. Thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so infuriating. Then savoring, actually tasting, the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable the thought of feeling ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. There's more, but I think you get the point. So the accessibility to this natural great peace or this joy of being, uh, it needs nurturing. The good news is it's very close to us and it follows you every instant. And it's never too late. It's, It's just that same notion that we kept bringing in during the retreat, that this moment is a new beginning. Begin the practice now, James says. And that's it, it ha, it's more profound than you think. Because our mind is so often hit in a, in a trance of thinking of ourselves ha, as having come from the past, passing through here real quickly on our way to something else. And to the degree that I live in that. In that dream of going, I'm, the, that peace is always a step ahead. The end of the rainbow. And it gets connected to what I want, what I need, what I hope for. And it's natural to have wants and hopes and needs. But I don't have to postpone being at peace while I'm going about trying to fulfill my dreams. Happiness is not something at the end of the rainbow. It's, it is our natural state. And so if you've touched in any way this joy of being, get used to it, nurture it. And then as you rest in that experience of yourself that can't be so easily put in words, try to make peace with the version of yourself that plays in your mind. It's completely interesting. It's not the enemy. It's inevitable. Don't try to get rid of your ego. Just see that it's part of the human condition. But a view of yourself is not self. It's not self in that it's changing all the time. It's not yourself because it can't capture the beauty of your nature I'll leave you with one little story and this speaks of the developmental nature of identity and how easy it is to get caught up in it and, and hopefully that we really apprehend this this, uh, this wonderful capacity that we've, you may have discovered to step out of it to touch into that part of you that's not that's not bound up in your identity. I earlier described my almost 15-year-old daughter Molly. She just went off to do a vision quest in in uh, you know some somewhere, and she's going to be gone 19 days. It's part of the end of her middle school experience, and naturally, I I as a parent, I see her unfolding the only way she can given everything that's conspiring to create her as she is. And she's not just this little independent thing. She's been moved and forged by, by life. But it's very interesting. She has, she has a certain quality. I call it molliness. She has a kind of essence like how each person does. You can't bottle it. You can't put it in words. It's, but it's an emanation. It's a a naturalness. It's how life, it's the perfect creative expression of life in the form of her, just as it is for each of you. So her molliness has captivated me from the moment I laid eyes on her. But I also noticed that at age three or four, she went to nursery school. She Her view, her world widened. She went to nursery school and she had these little ringlet curls. And she noticed that there were these little blonde, she had dark, she had brown hair, and she saw these kids with straight blonde hair. And so a few days later, I saw her standing in front of the mirror trying to pull on her hair. All of a sudden, she was comparing herself to someone else and creating an identity that was somehow not quite right, like the the biscuits. And you could literally see the inevitability almost of this sense of being, of the version of herself of who she thinks she should be. It comes with the territory. Hopefully she gets mirrored for her essence. We try, but I can see that she's He's, as all of us do, has to go through that recovery um, of, as as Thich Nhat Hanh put it, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home and reclaim your heritage. So let's just sit and I'll end with a poem from Derek Walcott. It's entitled Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, Sit here. Eat, you will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes, Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. May all beings find the joy of being. Never stray away from it. All beings know that it is our natural state. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for listening.